Welcome to Movable Dough, the podcast where I interview and promote living composers. Join me as I talk with composers about their current projects, their past successes and setbacks, and their personal journeys. For more information about this podcast, please visit sdcompose.com slash movabledoe. Hey, this is Steve. Thanks for joining me for this episode of Movable Doe. My guest today is Dale Trumbor. Dale is an award-winning composer based in Los Angeles, California, who has been called a rising star among modern choral composers. Her music has been widely performed in the U.S. and internationally by ensembles including the Los Angeles Children's Chorus, Los Angeles Master Chorale, Pacific Chorale, Pasadena Symphony, The Singers, Minnesota Choral Artists, and Vocal Essence. She is also an author recently publishing a book called Staying Composed, Overcoming Anxiety and Self-Doubt Within a Creative Life. Dale Trumbor, thank you for joining me today on Movable Dough. Thanks so much for having me. So let's begin by exploring your musical journey. So you're in LA now, but you're originally from New Jersey. So can you point to sort of the beginning of your musical journey? Yeah, so like many composers or musicians, um, I started taking instrumental lessons when I was about seven. Um, For me, that was piano. And I also started singing in choirs when I was younger. I sang in school choirs and church choirs. And then in college, I sang um, with the University of Maryland uh, chamber singers and then the USC chamber singers out here in California as well. But to back up a little bit, uh, I took those, I started taking those piano lessons and uh, really found that I I loved exploring the instrument. I really loved playing a song, but then putting my own spin on it. Sometimes I thought I knew better than what was on the page. (laughs) And of course I probably didn't. Uh, (laughs) I wasn't any sort of prodigy or anything, but, uh, but that was the very start of my composing was just sitting at the piano and uh, playing whatever melodies popped into my head. Um, And I was lucky enough to have teachers who encouraged me to write those down who told, told me I should get staff paper or would buy that for me to get me started. And then we're very encouraging of following those instincts and uh, just those early fleeting attempts at composing uh, the teachers that I had were very supportive of that. Yeah, that's great. Uh, so did you always think you wanted to be a composer when you grew up or, or what did you want to be when you were a little girl? I... I mean, I think like most kids, I wanted to be a lot of different things. At one point, I thought I wanted to be a veterinarian. That was when I was like seven or eight, you know, but by the time I was 16 and starting to think seriously about my career, um, I was actually, I tell this story often where I was torn between taking a journalism elective and music theory as an elective. And I picked music theory and just loved it. I think I... I had a couple of friends in the class who were struggling a little bit with using Sibelius, the notation program. Um, and I just, I was churning music out. I was <laughs> so into analyzing chords. I like it. I really just like, I took that class and it felt completely right. I loved it. And in a way that I saw most people were not loving it uh, in a sort of nerdy um I just, I, I don't know. I was really glad that I chose music theory and that sort of solidified my choice to pursue music uh, in college. 
as well. I still, I wonder sometimes if I had taken that journalism elective, I think I still would have found my way to music. And even now as a full-time composer, I still find a way to write. Mm -hmm. I'm still writing. I have a book, like you mentioned. Um, I write essays and things. Now I'm dipping my toe into writing fiction as well. So I've found a way to incorporate both of those interests, but there was a definite splinter sort of in my potential life paths when I was about 16 or so. Yeah, just a, a brief side note. Uh, last night I was doing a, a, a random search. I mean, one random. I was doing a search about commissioning uh, compositions and things like that and clicked on a link and a blog post came up written by you, which I, I'm like, wait, I'm interviewing her tomorrow. This is uh, very, I, I wasn't looking for things by you, but there it was out there uh, on the web. Uh, so did your, was your family musical as well? They, they were and they are. Um, they're not professional musicians. No one in my family is or was a professional musician. Um, if anything, they're all writers and editors, uh-huh. uh, which is kind of funny. That's where that, that that's a very clear, uh, you can trace that influence, I think, in my life. But um, my mom played piano. She loves musical theater, and I grew up loving musical theater. I used to sit and sort of play at her feet at the piano when I was very young, when she would play through uh, different musicals and uh, and we sang together. Like I mentioned, I was I sang in church choirs when I was young, and my mom was singing in those choirs as well. Uh, and my dad sings around the house. <laughs> he he studied instruments. Both my parents played. Uh, I think my mom played clarinet. I might get this wrong. My dad maybe played trumpet. I I don't know, but they're, they're very musical people. They enjoy music a lot. And I grew up with not lots of classical music, but just music in general, whether it's classic rock or Broadway uh, happening around me. Yeah. Yeah. So it seems like you grew up with your feet in both of those worlds, music and journalism as you were growing up. Okay. So absolutely. So after you finished your master's in music composition, uh, at USC. What kept you in California? Honestly, I think it's the community here. It's a combination of having found really wonderful people, really wonderful friends, um, most of whom are also really talented musicians who inspire me to be a better musician. Um, people like Julia Adolph, uh, Rena Esmail, Thomas Kotcheff, um, friends who are composers uh, again, composers and friends. And um, I actually, I met my husband in grad school too, though he, now he's an app developer and not a musician anymore. Um, But I really, I hadn't, I think before I got to USC, I hadn't found composers who I could also really be close friends with, like find that kind of intimate friendship with, um, as people, of course, I had friends who were composers in undergrad, but to really find your community and to also uh, find a community here in LA, there are so many amazing ensembles that are devoted to new music, either specifically or as a major focus of what they do. Like the LA Master Chorale, who I've worked with a couple times now, uh, who are really one of the best, if not the best chorus in the country. Of course, I'm a little biased because I'm here and they're here. <laughs> I've worked with them multiple times, but um, other groups like uh, Choral Arts Initiative in Orange County and Tonality, 
LA Coral Lab. There's so many, that's just the choruses, but there are of course chamber ensembles here too, orchestras, we have the LA Phil. I can just, in normal non-COVID times, I can go to a concert on any night and hear something just really spectacular. Yeah, that would be a, a good drawing point to stay in LA for sure. <laughs> All right, so I want to turn next to your book, Staying Composed. So this book is a composer's perspective on issues of self-doubt, anxiety, managing procrastination, handling rejection, and so much more. So who did you feel your audience was as you were writing? I was imagining, I think like like many authors, uh, especially writing a book that is sort of, I, I guess I hesitate to say self-help because we associate that with sort of like a cheesy, uh, maybe not actual helpfulness. I don't know, maybe that's my own stereotypes about what the words self-help, uh, the words mean. But I was assuming, I was sort of keeping myself in mind, but myself when I was 20, 22, 24, uh, in college, and then getting my master's, and then just after my master's degree, when I really... I knew what I wanted to do ideally was that I wanted to make a living composing, but I didn't have a sense yet for how to structure my days. I didn't have a sense of how to deal with the things you mentioned, like procrastination, anxiety. Uh, and even um, in the book, I talk about finding success. The sort of the, the end of the book is dealing with more recent things that have come up in my career like what happens when you do have a, a successful project and then it's over and you're left with sort of a, almost a crippling emptiness, uh, the, just a lack of that project in your life that you've spent years working on. Um, so I wanted a book sort of selfishly, like as if I could go back in the past and give it to myself, which of course I can't, <laughs> but, um, but I wanted a book that answered all those questions that I had as a younger artist. And then really the goal was to have it not only be relevant to composers, but to be relevant to anyone in any artistic field. Um, anyone who is creative, um, not only as the one creating, but for, I would hope, conductors. And actually, I, from the conductors who have read it, I've heard that it is helpful just in terms of managing what you do and how you process anxiety in particular on any given day. Sure. Speaking of those that have read it, there were a couple of the uh, of the reviews on Amazon that I particularly enjoyed. I just want to share a couple of these here. Uh, one reader said, I really appreciate that Trumbor points out that we all approach our creativity and our careers differently and that what works great for some people isn't useful for others. So many guides insist on a one size fits all approach. And another reader said, Reading this book is like reading a series of really insightful letters from a good friend who knows me well. Dale Trumbor's honest and earnest advice makes me feel like my own self-doubt isn't nearly as insurmountable as I believe. So Dale, the big question is, what did you discover about yourself as you were writing this? Well, one thing, to be honest, um, to be completely frank about the process of writing this book was everything I describe in the book came up in the process of writing this book. Uh, everything, when I'm speaking about difficult, challenging parts of the creative process, um, the book was a creative act, right? I had to create it. And so 
for example, if I'm talking about the part uh, in any in any process, in anything creative I do, I there's a moment where I just kind of hate everything that I've written so far, whether it's music or words. And that day is inevitable for me uh, in my own process. I know that day is coming. And it was kind of funny in, I guess, in sort of a dark way to see that come up in this very project where I'd be writing a chapter about procrastination and I'd be wanting to procrastinate writing it or I'd be writing about that day where everything sucks and I'd be looking at the entire project thinking is this worth my time is this worth anyone's time and of course that day did pass and I did finish the book like I do with all of my projects or nearly all of my projects but um, I think to come back to your question what I've learned is uh, exactly what the book says that this is an ongoing process, learning to recognize your own doubts and learning to recognize the worst parts of your creative process um, and move through them with grace, move through them without attaching attaching too much weight to them, without giving them more, uh, letting them turn into something darker than they are, just accepting that they're part of the process and they pass. That all is relevant to me as well. Just because I've found practices that work for me, it doesn't mean that I am somehow now above them, mm-hmm. right? It doesn't mean that you do it once and it's done. It's more like practicing your instrument um, or learning a new piece of music. Um, every time you come to a new piece of music, you're going to have to use certain practices to understand it. You're, you can get better, of course, at, say, sight reading or say conducting or even composing but the the process is the process yeah yeah no matter what so outside of anxiety and self-doubt what do you think has been your greatest challenge as a composer i think at the start of my career uh it was just getting the kind of or finding and making the kind of opportunities that i wanted for myself uh in terms of commissions and in my mind and I this is not true for all artists or composers but I've always wanted the creativity to go hand in hand with making a living um I've wanted like I've known for a long time that I wanted to support myself with my art and so that's taken I think about 12, 11 or 12 years to get to that point where now I am supporting myself with my art completely. Um, but I think it, when you're starting out for sure, it's a, it's a struggle. It can be a struggle to make a name for yourself and um, to connect with the kind of people that you want to be making art yeah. with. Yeah. Well, let's think outside of music for a second. Okay. What sort of hobbies do you have? What what do you enjoy doing when you're not making music? I like, so I, I really like reading a lot, especially fiction. Um, I'm really into speculative fiction, which I didn't even know was a genre until a few years ago, which I'm kind of sad about because it's it's now my favorite, uh, my favorite way to read fiction is this fiction that's, it doesn't fall into horror or fantasy or science fiction but it's not realism either. It borrows just little tiny elements of uh, the fantastical, I guess, but in, in sort of an ordinary way. So writers like uh, Karen Russell, Helen Oyeyemi, um, Kelly Link, 
right now I'm actually reading a bunch of Shirley Jackson because she's sort of inspired a lot of these newer writers. Um, that's, I guess, that's the main thing I do for fun. I love. Yeah, you said it was called speculative, speculative fiction. Speculative fiction, yeah, and especially uh, short stories. Maybe because, um, well, I don't, now I'm I'm taking a fiction workshop, and I've been working on short stories, on actually a book of short stories, which. Who knows if that will ever be published? I'm very new to this. I've been doing it for a year, but I've been reading this vein of work for years now. And it's really thrilling to be trying and not even necessarily succeeding all the time, but just to be uh, trying to do it myself. I think there's something really thrilling about trying something new and, um, and, Again, I sort of said with the book, like giving yourself grace to fail. Um, mm -hmm. I think that's important too whenever you try any new hobby. Yeah. So one one last question before we get into your music. Um, what what music inspired you when you were growing up? What was your favorite type of music to listen to? What composers uh, did you find that you loved? I so. I've been actually sort of rethinking the way I answer this question because usually when I'm talking to someone else who's a musician, I can like I can throw out like Chopin, for example. Like I loved and and still love playing Chopin at the piano. It's what I gravitate towards when I'm looking to play something for fun at the piano. But that's not necessarily what I was listening to outside of my piano lessons. Um, I I mean when <laughs> my I think my first CD I ever bought was the Celine Dion Christmas album. <laughs> I wasn't I didn't have very highbrow taste um <laughs> as a as a younger person. Um but I got I got really into Tori Amos and Radiohead. Oh, in I high love school. Tori Amos. Yeah. Uh. She was just my first musical love in terms of I guess listening to something and wanting to do that, not necessarily to make music that sounds like her music, but just wanting to make music like just just wanting to try it and to do it and um and wanting to buy like every album every new album that came out being back when there were record stores like begging my dad to drive me <laughs> to go get the new tori amos cd uh yeah but to yeah tori and and radiohead were sort of the the big influences and i like I said before, I love um, Broadway musicals as well, um, like Candor and Ebb, uh, Cabaret. Um, and yeah, really not, not so much classical music until I got to college. I, I listened to things, of course, um, but I, especially orchestral music, I, it just wasn't really on my radar to be honest and that's something i again like i've had to change how i talk about this because i think i wanted to sound like i of course i've loved classical music all my life and i have I, in my piano lessons i went to uh chamber music camp too and played piano in chamber groups and played lots of like schubert and schumann and dvorak and loved all of that that chamber music as well but when it comes to orchestral music i came to it much later in life 
All right. Well, we're going to take a quick break and then we'll have a chance to explore some of Dale's compositions. Welcome back. My guest today is Dale Trumbord. So let's start with one of your orchestral works, Infinitely and Without Apology. So piggybacking on the ideas talked about in your book, this piece deals with self-confidence, especially the loss of that confidence from childhood to adolescence, and even more specifically from the perspective of a woman. So could you tell us more about what you were thinking as you wrote this piece? Yeah, this uh, was a commission from the Pasadena Symphony. Um, and I was really excited to be, I wasn't, still am really excited that I got the opportunity to work with them. Um, like I was saying before, I think it's really special to work because I love this community so much. It's really special to work with groups uh, in the Los Angeles area, um, many of whom I've been to multiple concerts and love their work. So it's it's extra meaningful when that happens. With this piece in particular, I was asked to write something specifically on the theme of female empowerment or something that spoke to what it means to be a woman. And I. Usually when I'm asked, or when, say when I'm talking to an ensemble and doing a Q&A or a discussion and I'm asked how it feels to be a female composer, uh, I have mixed feelings about that label even. I like really, I would just like to write music and have it be judged on its own merit um, and not have gender come into play unless it's something I'm specifically choosing to engage with in the music. But for this piece, it is, so this was the commission. And so I was thinking, how can I go about this in a way that does feel um, like something that's intriguing or that's something, something that presents a journey. I'm really big on thinking what, like, what's the emotional journey of a piece? If you, come to it as a performer or as an audience member, or even for me as the creator of a piece, like how are we different at the end of that piece than we are at the start because we've gone on this emotional journey and we've completed this arc. So for me, this piece was thinking about how self-confidence uh, sort of builds and then dissipates or maybe it's shattered over the course of a life. And then how you go about building up that confidence again within yourself, um, maybe despite external factors that are encouraging you to be smaller, to take up less space. Um, the, the title actually takes, uh, takes its name from a poem about literally taking up space, like not um, engaging with like body shaming and or rather not body shaming mm -hmm. and accepting who you are and um you know, no matter what your appearance is or your weight. Uh, but I, it's absolutely metaphorical as well, that idea of, of being who you are and not worrying so much what others are going to think if you are trying to express yourself in a really bold way. And the way that comes back to this idea of womanhood or femaleness, whatever you want to call it, um, which again, I sometimes hesitate to write about or talk about, but I really do think in our society, we still see ways that women, people who identify as women are um, are taught to be quieter or to, to act smaller, to not be as bold or as brash. We're labeled 
right? Shrill, like men aren't labeled shrill, women are labeled shrill. <laughs> There's still elements of that in our yeah. society that I would love to see go away. Uh, and if this piece makes anyone think about that for even a moment, I think that's uh, that's what I was hoping for here. All right, well, let's take a moment and we'll listen to an excerpt from Infinitely and Without Apology. Next, let's talk about Faster. Uh, you have this available for SATB, TTBB, or SSAA. So I was reading the lyrics of this piece and felt them super apropos for the situation that we find ourselves in now. And I'd, I'd like to read just the first couple stanzas. I know I should be happy with what I have, where I am now, the slow and simple life I leave, live. But it feels like I'm stuck in the same place, ready for something new, knowing that something has to give. What if I want to go faster? What if it's time to leave? What if I want the unknown world to open up? What if I'm ready now to be on my own, ready to leave a life I've outgrown? So I know this is a piece where you are the poet as well as the composer. So what were you thinking as you wrote these words? I was thinking specifically about the feeling that I had in high school of knowing that I wanted to, I just wanted a bigger life for myself, I guess, to to come back to that idea of wanting to be, um, to have like that idea of living a large, fulfilling life. I felt, well, in many ways, I, I was lucky to have a really wonderful um, musical uh, community in the sense of having really wonderful teachers in music, um, I had some really great friends in high school, but at the same time, I was in this small town, Chatham, New Jersey, 
Um, it's very homogenous. It's very white. It's very Christian. It's very, it's pretty conservative. And I just, I wanted more than that. I was ready to get out of there. Uh, basically when we moved there <laughs> in, uh, in sixth grade from like, we moved to that town and I was like, nope, I'm getting out uh, as soon as I can. So I wanted to capture that feeling of almost restlessness. And, but I think it does pertain to a lot of different situations. And I find this is true of a lot of art, of course, where uh, it helps when the artist is very specific in what they're, what they're thinking about and what their intentions are, um, what their motivation is when they're describing a certain experience. But just even though that is specific to them, that experience um, in, its, in all of its specific detail might still resonate in a really wide universal way. Uh, and I think that specificity actually helps, um, or at least for me, it does when I'm thinking about something specific as I'm writing a piece or writing lyrics, that doesn't, that doesn't um, inhibit that piece's ability to be universal or to apply to many different situations. Uh, it actually sometimes helps that because I think, I forget where I read this, but I know I've read, I, I'm gonna maybe mess this quote up, too, but it doesn't matter because I don't remember where it's from, but there's no, it's something like there's no, nothing you experience has not been experienced by another human being. And again, I'm probably misquoting that, but I think that's where that specificity really can get at the root of a feeling that is universal, even if it's grounded in say, wanting to leave a small town in high school it might apply now to the feeling we all have as we're stuck inside our houses, wanting to go faster, wanting to get back to our normal lives and having to reckon with that and then having to plan how we will live our lives in a bigger way when this is over. Yeah, that's a really interesting perspective where you are approaching universality from specificity. Instead of trying to create something universal, you're creating something very specific that then can be interpreted universally. That's a really interesting way to look at that. All right, so let's take a moment and listen to Faster.
All right, I would like to go next to 15 Ways to Splinter a Sunset for Violin Piano. First of all, I was just captured by the title. I was drawn immediately to that title as, as something unique and, and captivating. I loved your description of looking at the painting that inspired this piece, Norman Zammett's Buffalo Blue. So could you describe that painting and how it led to the creation of this piece? Yeah, so this commission was specifically to write a piece in poetry, there's a word ekphrastic that refers to a poem that's based on a painting. And I don't, I don't think I've seen that word applied to uh, composing or commissioning, um, but this was an ekphrastic commission, right? I had to write a piece responding to this painting or a painting. Um, and I chose this one because it, it's abstract. It's a series of colors um, that resemble, to me at least, they resemble a sunset. That might not have been the painter's intention, but um, as I was looking at this painting, that's what I was thinking of uh, was the colors in a sunset, but then there, there are these bands running against or running horizontally through the painting and fragmenting it. So we, we see these sort of a pleasant combination of colors that we might have positive associations with, but then it's fragmented and fractured. And so I, I was thinking about, again, to get back to that idea of specificity, I was thinking about the moments where I've been in a situation that looks beautiful, that is beautiful, um, where I, I might be telling myself, you should be having the greatest time of your life right now. Like you should be feeling this way. You should be feeling really happy, really fulfilled. And I might not be feeling those things at all. I might internally, I might be feeling very anxious. I might be feeling um, confused or sad or any number of emotions, even though I'm in a place or a situation where I should be at the height of happiness. So I was thinking about those moments and how when that happens to me, the goal is always just to stay grounded and to acknowledge that I'm feeling what I'm feeling. And I actually talk about this in Staying Composed a little bit too, uh, about one specific incident where it was just after my album, How to Go On came out and I went to the beach with my now husband to celebrate and I just could not focus. I was, I felt kind of sad and a little lost and we were at the beach and it was beautiful. It was a sunny, like a sunny day in Malibu, it's, you know, people are frolicking in the sand and the water. We, I think we brought like a picnic with us and I had magazines to read that I've been saving for when I wasn't so busy. And I just, for whatever reason, my mind was not syncing up with the environment around me. But what I did then and what I still try to do and what this piece is about, it's just acknowledging that you're having these thoughts and then trying to return really to like ground into your body to acknowledge your breath to acknowledge what you're seeing and smelling and hearing um and to see if that helps shift things around towards being able to if not rise to the pinnacle of of joy in this situation to at least just sort of relax into it and to acknowledge your feelings as real and then maybe try to move past them. So did you try to stay literal to the 15 ways to splinter a sunset? And did you try to find 15 ways to uh, create texture with the violin and piano in this piece? I, w I was thinking about, well, in, in the piece there, 
different extended techniques. So, so sounds we don't usually associate with the violin, like scratchiness um, and uh, sort of like frantic tremolos, tremol tremoli, I don't know how to make tremolo plural, uh, but there were, I was thinking about all the different ways that I could uh, express through, specifically through the violin, um, yeah, that sense of splintering or just taking you out of the moment. Because the violin really is this romantic, capital R romantic instrument in a lot of, just in a general sense. Like if we hear it in a film score, if we hear a solo violin, it's usually doing something emotional and heart-wrenching or, you know, we our associations with a solo violin can be very, uh, very positive, I guess. And I wanted to think of all those ways that we could come out of that and then ease back into them and ultimately end in a place of uh, immersion, I guess, of being immersed in an experience rather than being taken out of it. And the piano in this piece is sort of more of a constant, steady presence. It's almost more like the piano is the environment and the, the violin is the response and the fracturing. Uh-huh. Okay. And this is recorded by Panic Duo. Is that right? Yeah, they're another local group. Uh, and Nick, the pianist, Nick Gerby, actually recorded or uh, performed, and there's a recording of it on my website, um, my piano concerto, 10,000 Hours. I worked yeah, with him on that. that as well. That's awesome. Yeah. Uh, but we've been saying since that piece, which I think premiered in 2010 or 20, no, 2011, maybe? 2010 uh we've been saying since then that we wanted to work together again and it took until i think last year for 15 ways to splinter a sunset to happen but i'm hoping i'll get to work with nick again because he's a really talented pianist and pasha Saitlin, the violinist is also just really phenomenally phenomenally talented all right well let's listen to panic duo performing 15 ways to splinter a sunset
Lastly, let's talk about how to go on. A large multi-movement work for divided SATB acapella chorus. Uh, this piece received the 2017 ASCAP Martin Gold Award. So you call this a secular requiem. Can you explain what you mean by that? Yeah, I, so despite growing up Christian, Episcopalian, right now I'm agnostic. I'm sort of culturally Christian, I guess, in that I still uh, look forward to celebrating things like Christmas with my family, but I am not a religious person. Um, and I still, I know in music, I find a great deal of solace and comfort uh, in listening to music that's secular and religious. But I wanted, with this piece and just in the world, I wanted there to exist a piece that dealt with loss and grief and death um, and that offered up that same solace and comfort without bringing religion into it. And that's not to say that it's uh, it's excluding religious beliefs in any way, because that that also, that was not my intention with this piece. It's sort of actually like what we were talking about with Staying Composed with the book is I wanted to write it from my perspective as a composer, but I didn't want to limit it to like only composers getting something out of that book. I wanted literally anyone to be able to come to that book and get something out of it. And the same is true for How to Go On, where I wanted anyone of any religious background or ideology to be able to come to this piece and find in the words and in the music, a sense of moving through loss or grief. Um, again, that emotional arc coming out on the other side of this piece, feeling a sense of catharsis, um, of, of having, um, yeah, really just having moved through, having stirred up a few emotions, but then coming out of that experience with maybe just feeling a little lighter, feeling a little more peaceful. Um, yeah. yeah. It's sort of that idea we were talking about before, you know, finding universality through the specific experiences. So exactly. was, was there something specific uh, happening in your life as you were writing this that you were, you were channeling or were you, you using past emotions? What were you, what were you thinking as you wrote this? I was thinking, so around the time I was writing the piece, uh, especially in its earliest drafts, I had a, a few close family friends had passed away recently. Um, and I was thinking a lot actually about my own mortality, not because of any one specific event. Um, not like my, my health was fine. Um, not an event in that sense, but I had been meditating a lot and I had been meditating, um, one day and had this experience where I, for some reason, started thinking about death and started thinking like what if there is nothing after I die uh which is really dark and not a great I, I just I felt terrible <laughs> like I felt terrible for days I basically sort of fell into a depression where I was like what if nothing has meaning and everything like I I was sort of lost after this one experience and really was just kind of coming to terms with the fact that we all die eventually. Like I, I was just thinking about it intensely and I don't recommend this. Like this is not, <laughs> not, um, not a positive thing, but that really factored into what I wanted this piece to be um, because I think 
honestly, like the, the poetry for how to go on, it's one of the few things that actually makes me feel better. And, and that sense of like calm peace surrounding mortality, uh, especially reading uh, the final text for the, the last movement. And the piece can be in any order or almost any order. The movements are decide, designed to be modular and flexible. So the order of the piece can change, but the, the last movement has to stay the same. And it's a poem by Amy Fleury talking about how after, uh, after we die, the body turns back into something of nature. And she, uh, the last line is, onto some animal's tongue, my soul. It's, again, this sounds dark, I think when I'm talking about it, but if you read the texts and you listen to the music, it's really not a dark piece. Like the goal of the piece is the opposite. It's to put you in a more calm and peaceful state of mind, having having heard these, these words and this music sung. And that poem in particular really, I think just makes me feel better about life uh, in a very specific way um, that I wanted, like with this piece, I wanted to share that feeling. Yeah. All right, well, let's take a moment. We're going to listen to part of the first and part of the third movements from How to Go On.
All right, so Dale, what projects are you working on now? Or even even better, what performances were canceled because of COVID? Because we all had things canceled. I, so the, the performance, well, there are a couple that I'm really sad about, but one that I think will just be moved to next year was I was working on a piece for a Christmas concert with the LA Master Chorale. Uh, and uh, the, I was setting a poem that wasn't, it wasn't Christmas specific, but it was this wintry poem by one of the authors of how, the How to Go On libretto, um, Laura Foley. And I just, I again, I love working with that group. I will jump at any opportunity to work with them again. And so I was really excited about this commission and then their whole season, they were one of the earliest choruses to just take the entire season and push it. Um, but hopefully that will still happen. It'll just be in December 2021 or maybe 2022. We'll see. But right now I'm actually, I'm working on um, a large scale piano piece. And this, I thought I'd finish it. I don't know. I, I give myself arbitrary deadlines and I'm much better with real deadlines. If you commission me and we have a contract, I will hit that deadline. I am getting that piece done. It's going to happen. But this piano piece is a project really for me, uh, for me to perform and record on an album. At some point, hopefully in 2021, uh, it'll be a piece that is about how memory changes over time, both uh, in forgetting and also, I guess there's a scientific um, principle or there's a like a proven element that when we revisit a memory, we can change it just in the act of remembering it. I find this so intriguing. Um, so the piece is dealing with that really just how does, how do we, uh, how does our, the way that we remember something over time, how does that put us in a different place? Um, like how we react to something that happened, whether it's something that we're, sad about or something that we wish we hadn't done or something really wonderful in our life. Like how do all of those different memories take different shapes uh, over a span of years? So that's, that's what that piece will be about. And it'll make a little more sense. I'm, I'm trying to make the score or I'm going to make the score for that uh, almost interactive in a way. I'm still figuring this out, but uh, as a way, like, where there are almost questions for the listener so that it's sort of an interactive experience where you're you're engaging with your own memories as you listen to the music and as you look at the score but mm. i'll know more about this when i've actually finished the piece uh right now it's still very much in progress i have about 15 to 20 minutes written and i want it to be around a 35 to 45 minute piece so yeah, yeah. So if my listeners wanted to learn more about you and your music, where are you found online? Pretty much everything that you could possibly want to know, I would think, about my music uh, or my writing is at my website, which is daletrumbler.com. Um, that also, that'll take you to Twitter, Instagram, or YouTube if you want to go there as well. I think I'm just at daletrumbler on all of those platforms. Um, and then if you want to reach out to me, that happens through my website as well. There's a contact form and that will make its way to me as well. Fantastic. Well, thank you so much for joining me today, Dale. It has been a pleasure to talk to you. Yeah, thank you so much. My guest today was composer Dale Trumbor. 
If you enjoyed today's episode, please subscribe to your favorite podcast provider. To hear previous episodes, visit sdcompose.com slash movabledough. If you would like to continue this conversation or share your favorite music by Dale Trumbord, join us on our Facebook group, Movable Dough Listeners. If you have show or guest suggestions, please email me at movabledough at gmail.com. This is Steve Danielson. Keep the music moving.